0: Can I ask us to bow our heads? I want to pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for this wonderful season, Lord, that we're walking into, the season of Christmas. And as we heard in our prayer meeting this morning, Christmas is a lot more than just gifts and presents and all the cool stuff that we do. It's a season where we get to celebrate you, Jesus. And so as we start this Advent series this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high, that more than anything else this morning, we would encounter you, Jesus. And I Just pray that you would bring your anointing, your power, and your glory here today. And let your will be done in all that we discuss today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you know what the word Advent means? Just a few of you. Mark, of course. Mark knows. Mark is super... What's wrong? Don't knock it off. It's on my water thing, love. It's my special place. Sorry about that. Advent, simply put, means the beginning of something. It means... The arrival in in terms of Christmas of a person, or it could mean the invention of something. Over the years, Advent has come to represent the four week period leading up to Christmas, at least that is for Christ followers, right? But what you will notice is that we're starting our Advent series a little bit earlier, and we've actually got five weeks to Advent this year. You see, we like to do different things here, we like to just change tradition because that's what we do. I'm just kidding. But we have added an additional Advent theme for this year's Advent. And And the theme that we've added and we're going to discuss this morning is the theme of prophecy. And the reason we've chosen to add prophecy to Advent this year is when you think about it, Christmas is all about prophecy, right? I mean, of course, we know that it's Jesus has come. He was born, he was crucified, and he did resurrect. However, I want to say this to you this morning, that that promise of Jesus wasn't just necessarily about his birth. You see, the promise of Jesus is a promise that lives on today. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we've read this scripture in our Revelation series, comes from the moment in time in which humanity rebelled against God. Remember that, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve decided to listen to the serpent. Eve did, and then Adam did. But they were both equally guilty. And as a result, God wants to you know, correct things, and so he kicks them out of the garden. Why? Because if they stayed in the Garden of Eden, they would live forever. They would live in their sin. They would live corrupted. But in addition to not only punishing Adam and Eve, what God does is he brings a curse against the enemy, Satan, the dragon that we've heard about in Revelation. And he says this in Genesis 3 verse 15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Now remember, Revelation chapter 12, we heard about this woman who was escaping the grips of Satan, running into the desert. She was he- and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the child of the promise we know today is Jesus. We know that the child of the promise came to do something that nobody else could ever do. He came to reverse everything that happened at the dawn of humanity. Not not just 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years. At the beginning of time, Jesus came to reverse all that we as humanity lost. He came to rectify this great wrong, to bring us back into right relationship with God. There is a chasm that separates every single human being from God, and the only bridge across it is Jesus Christ. And so I say that to you this morning because while the cross fulfilled part of Jesus' story, we know from revelations that his story is not over. We know that Jesus is coming back. And that's what Christmas is about. At least when I think about Christmas, yes, it's we get to celebrate our salvation. But we need to look forward to a time when Jesus is going to come back and finish it all. Amen? I hope that excites you because it excites me. It's told us for generations and eons. And I know that word prophecy comes with its own connotations. And depending on where you fit within all of this, you might think, well, prophecy is not relevant to the church today. It has to be relevant because we're living in it. We're living proof that the prophecies of God come true. And while it is true that many human beings who have spoken on behalf of God, especially over the last few years, have got it wrong, it doesn't mean that prophecy doesn't exist. But I'm not even going to get into that type of prophecy today. I do believe that prophecy exists, just so you know. And I do believe God speaks through us, as we heard this morning, through a word from Andy. But the prophecy I want to talk about this morning is a prophecy that comes from God's mouth. A prophecy that is biblical prophecy. Because while human words may be fallible, while human words may fall short of the glory of God and may fall short of coming to fruition, because sometimes we hear in part and we don't necessarily know how to interpret it, God's words are always true. Isaiah fifty five in verse ten puts it this way it says, For as the rain and the snow come down not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed the thing for which I sent it. God's word cannot, nor will it ever return void. Every single line of scripture, every single punctuation mark, every single uh, grammatical clause in the Bible, every prophecy, everything that God has ever said in this infallible word will come true. And that is encouraging. Do you know that there are 300 references in this scripture to 61 specific prophecies about Jesus? Mainly, and those prophecies in particular, are in the Old Testament. And those prophecies told us a few things. You see, often we think that they foretold about the day that the Messiah would arrive. And that is true, they did, and Jesus did come and he was born. But these prophecies, communicate something far more important something far more significant to us that I want to historians will tell you that Jesus was real they'll tell you that he walked this earth they'll even tell you that he died on the cross but what these prophecies tell us is that Jesus the Jesus of the bible that we know was not just a man but that he was God He was the incarnate Son of God, part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He is, for all intents and purposes, God. He was the God-man that came to this earth, who humbled himself and came like one of us, a baby child, like Andy said this morning, weak, vulnerable. Why? So that he could connect us back to God. We would never have someone to associate to like Jesus had he not come in our flesh. Because to be honest, God is a very distant thing for most of us. We don't see him. We don't understand him. He is a little bit ethereal. But when Jesus came and took on human flesh and died the death that we should have died and gave us his righteousness in exchange, in exchange for our sin, he did something that changed history forever, friends. And our entire faith, who we are as believers, hinges on that fact. And I say that to you because if we want to do what Mark preached about so well two weeks ago, and I want to honor Tim and Mark, they preached amazing and powerful words. But for us to go to the nations, to do what we do in Roatan or wherever else God has called us, if God is not Jesus or Jesus is not God, we wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. Or if we want to truly believe that our identity, as Tim preached on last week, is found in Christ, then he has to be God. Because otherwise I'm putting my identity in another man and we don't need to do that. And So Jesus has to be God and he is God. And now you might be thinking to yourself, but what are we doing here? I mean, this is church. We're all here. We must believe that Jesus is God, right? I mean, the truth is we are at church, surprise. I know it was a bit weird when we started, but this is church. And while all of us here in this room, and maybe some of us don't, I'm not sure, but maybe most of us here in this room believe that Jesus is God, I want to ask us a question. We have a lot of head knowledge about Jesus. Do we live our lives showing the world that Christ in us is the hope of glory? Do we live our lives believing it with every part of our being? Unfortunately, and I'm speaking for myself, I know that there are many times in my life where I don't live with that reality. It happens every single time when I put my desires before his desires. I mean, if this is God we're talking about, then he's God, right? And if he was real to me all the time, I wouldn't put my desires before his. I'd put his desires before mine, right? It happens to me every single time I am more concerned about what you think of me than I am about what God thinks of me. I had a weak moment yesterday as I was preparing this preach where the the Lord convicted me so dearly. He said to me, who are you doing this message for? Is it for them or is it for me? And don't get me wrong, I love you guys. You guys are awesome. But the reality is we do so much that in that moment he's not. It happens every time we take this living, inspired and infallible Word of God and we decide what to keep and what to get rid of. Why? Because it convicts us of our sin. And so we say, oh, well, you know, that was just to them back then. It doesn't apply to us today. It happens to us every single time. We walk past somebody's lost. And we don't even share the gospel. And the reason we don't share the gospel is because we're worried about what they'll say about it. You see, we vacillate between knowing Jesus is real and pretending or behaving like he isn't. We might have the head knowledge, friends, but it has to become heart knowledge. It has to become revelation. And I'm not condemning anyone in this room, please don't get me wrong I'm fallible to this too. But I'm hoping, and I'm praying that every moment of every day the revelation of who Jesus is in me grows stronger than the revelation I have of this world itself. Jesus is more real to us in the air we breathe. He's more This was not real. And so this morning, I want to do two things. First, I want to settle this issue of how real really is Jesus. And I'm speaking to people that perhaps have got some doubts. People that perhaps have ever wondered at any moment in their lives, maybe is God really real? Is everything I've really heard about the Bible, is it true? And I don't want to ask this question because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But the fact of the matter is every one of us in this room, even those of us who are children of God, have had a moment where we've wondered, is this actually all true? Is this all going to happen? But I want to speak to those who maybe are on the fence this morning, who who are maybe fighting this fact that Jesus is real. And I want to prove to you this morning that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. And then I want us to look at a prophecy, one of the prophecies of Jesus. And in that, I want to look at some facts that will reinforce how we live our lives when Jesus is truly real to us. Can we do that today? It will just take two hours. So for anyone here this morning who is 100% trusted, is heaven real, Lord? Or maybe those of you who have fought against this notion of Jesus for far too long, who have said, I will not believe who Jesus is. I want to help us this morning with some interesting data. Data that's going to help us understand that Jesus has to be who he says he was. At least that's the way I see it. A few years ago, there was a maths and astronomy professor. And I've referenced some of the study historically in this church at differing differing points. But I want to talk about a lot of the study today. And so I want you to get your thinking caps on now and your mathematical brains. I don't have a mathematical brain, just so you know, so I'm probably going to mess this up. But let's try this anyway. His name was Peter Stoner. It's an unfortunate name, I know, but that was his name. And what he did was he looked at all the prophecies of Jesus. Remember, I said there's 61 specific prophecies, 300 references, references, references to Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. And he wanted to set out to figure out if it was possible prophecies are that I'm referring to I'll give you eight examples real quick Daniel chapters 8 and 9 give us the exact timeline of Jesus's birth the exact day of Jesus's birth Micah tells us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem that seems pretty specific right Isaiah seven fourteen tells us that he'll be born of a virgin Zechariah 11 tells us he that he would be betrayed not for one or two but 30 pieces of silver Psalm 22 verse 7 tells us that he'll be mocked. Psalm 22 verse 16 tells us that he'll be pierced for our transgressions. And Exodus chapter 12 says that not a single bone in his body during this entire process of crucifixion would ever be broken. These are not just weird, broad prophecies, friends. These are prophecies that relate to details that are very specific to only one person that's ever existed, and his name is Jesus. And so Stoner took examples like these and what he decided to do was he said, if I could just take eight prophecies of Jesus, just eight, eight prophecies about him and 10 to the power of 17. Now that's 10 followed by 17 zeros. If you're a gambling man or woman, I know nobody here is, but that's a big number. Put another way, it means one 100 quadrillion, like my bank balance. (laughs) But to put that into context, that would be equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet thick. And then marking one of those dollars randomly and asking a blindfolded man or woman to go in there and pick out that exact dollar by chance. We've got a mathematician in the room here. What do you think the odds are? Impossible, right? It gets crazier. Because if we were only to add eight more prophecies to those existing eight prophecies, in other words, if we took a total of 16 prophecies, the odds would be one, multiplied by 10 to the power of 28, multiplied by 10 to the power of 17. That is a number that I don't understand, but it's one in 10 to the power of 45. That's 45. Imagine we could take all of those silver balls, right, and press them into a sphere this time. So we take those silver dollars, sorry, and we press them into a sphere. The size of that sphere, the the, the entire width and, and sort of length, and I don't know what you call it, diameter of that sphere, would be from the center of the sun, all the way through to the planet Neptune and remember this is not a disc we're talking about we're talking about a ball a ball that's what is that maybe like 10 times the size of our sun and then you took the same blindfolded man and said why don't you go into that ball somewhere inside it and find that one silver dollar that I marked it's impossible friends but Stoner didn't end there because he really wanted to prove his point and so he gives one last illustration and I will stop now because Catherine told me not to do all of this stuff because she said we can, our brains are going to explode but for this next illustration a silver dollar is too big In fact, an atom is too big. And so what Stoner said he would do is he would take one of the smallest particles known to mankind. And that's an electron, the thing that orbits an atom, that little thing that that spins around 100 trillion electrons, and line them up in single file on a line, that line would be less than an inch long. That's how tiny those little things are, right? And so if we take 48 prophecies now, not 8 or 16, but 48 prophecies, bearing in mind that Jesus fulfilled 61 prophecies, and we took all those electrons and we put them in a ball and we squashed them all together, do you know that the size of that ball wouldn't be as big as our solar system? It wouldn't be as big as our galaxy. It wouldn't even be as big as the known universe. It would be 10 million times bigger than the known universe, which, by the way, is six billion light years in every direction. And since you are mathematicians, let me give you the odds of that. The odds of one person finding that one electron that we put our specific mark on, if we could, going in there, blindfolded, and finding it on the first time, is this number here. Stoner came up with this conclusion. He said this. He says, this is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God. Proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. As a result, any man or woman who rejects Christ as the son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Friends, Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a teacher and he wasn't a sage. Jesus was, is, and will forever be God. And just like the prophecies of old foretold of a day that Jesus would come, that he would be born in Bethlehem in a manger, that he would die the death on the cross for 30 pieces of silver, that he would ultimately be resurrected and then ascended to the Father, they remind us this morning that Jesus is a living prophecy, a prophecy that exists today because as Lord, even against the face of all of these facts, I know that some people will still choose not to believe. And if anything... Revelation has taught us, it is this simple fact, that there is a war waging right now for the souls of humanity. There is a war waging where the enemy wants to drag as many people to hell as he possibly can. And for whatever reason, God has chosen you and me to be his emissaries in this world, his images. You know, when God created us in his image and his likeness, what it's actually saying is God created us to image him, to reflect him, to be the ones that Jesus is seen in, in this world. He chose us. I don't know why he did that. I mean, honestly speaking, I look at myself, and I'm like, Lord, why me? But he chose us to do that to everyone that he put in our paths. But here's the deal. For us to be effective, to be able to do what God's called us to do, to image him correctly. We need to live every moment of every day as if Jesus is real. But it tells us what living a life with Jesus actually being real in us means for us. It starts like this in Isaiah 9 verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Generally, people start at verse 2 when they speak about the prophecies of Jesus, and I can understand why. I mean, we read these words, we're like, what the heck is going on here? What does this even mean? How does this relate to Jesus? There's some really important information here that I want us to understand. And to understand it, we need to understand the context. Isaiah the prophet was called primarily to witness to and to speak to the nation of Judah. Not the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. The nation who at this point, when this prophecy was written, had turned their backs on God. They had become wicked. They had forgotten about the God of Israel. And in some sense, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you got saved many years ago. Or maybe you've just been saved. I don't know. Maybe you've been saved for a few months, a few years, but you have lost perspective of God. Maybe the God of the Bible that was once so real to you has dulled. Maybe something has gotten in the way of your faith. Maybe that once sort of fervent faith of yours, the ability that you had to witness to people all over the place, dogs, cats, trees, you name it, prophesying to everyone everywhere has grown into just an ember and you can't even speak the name of Jesus anymore for fear. Maybe you've allowed the world to invade your life and you've become so consumed with the things of the world that Jesus is a secondary thing that we focus on well if that's you and believe me I think it's all of us at some point in our life I want us to remind us that we don't have to stay in that place verse 2 of Isaiah 9 says this the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness a light has shone Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah. You see, God was not. I must be doing more for God. God is not done with you yet. You need to stop beating yourself up. Now, I'm not saying don't deal with sin in your life, but what I am saying is this notion that we continuously call ourselves hopeless, that we're not good enough for the Lord to use, because maybe those are the labels that Tim spoke about last week that the world has put on you. And believe me, I know what that feels like because I was called hopeless for many years of my life. I was called a cockroach. Those are nasty creatures. That's not who we are in Christ. And God wants to remind us this morning that no matter what anyone has told you about, God wants to use you, no matter how low your faith may may be today. The text uses these places. That's why I read it. It talks about Zebulun and Naphtali. These are places in northern Israel, places that ultimately would represent the nation of Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the nation of Samaria, you need to know this. Jewish people didn't like people from Samaria. Yet you know what God did? He sent his Savior, born in Bethlehem, and then what did Jesus do? He spent his entire ministry, most of it. He chose the weak things in this world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are. You know, let me tell you something. You might be, that, you might be the not in that, in that text, Even those things that are not, wherever your faith is today, no matter how low it's been, no matter how long it's been since you've read the Bible, no matter how long it's been since you've witnessed about Jesus, He brings the things that are not as if they were things that are. He can take you this morning, revitalize you, and change your entire life. And that's our first fact. When Jesus is real to us, we don't care about what the world says. We don't look at our failures. We don't look at our past. We say, Lord, Christ in me is the hope of glory. And so I'm going to be resurrected just like Jesus was. And I'm going to walk out my faith as if it was real. God takes us as we are, not as we should be. We live in a culture of performance where everyone's got to do the right thing all the time. Friends, God takes you as you are, wherever you are. Verse three, you have now lives. We multiply and we become joyful. When was the last time you multiplied? Tim, you need to stop multiplying kids. You've got enough kids now. But honestly, when was the last time you multiplied yourself into someone else? When was the last time you had the privilege of sharing the gospel with something? Or someone, not something. That would be pointless. But here's the deal. The nation of Judah was going to find multiplication in the Messiah. And it wasn't that the nation of Judah was a big nation. What God was saying to them is just like I didn't just come for you in terms of the Jewish people of the world. I came for the Gentiles. That's where the multiplication came from. He's telling us today that the least, the lonely, the lost, the people out there that that look nothing like us are the ones that we need to multiply into. That tells me that if there's one place in all of existence, in the entire world, that needs to be inclusive, it is the church. Because guess what? No matter the color, no matter the creed, no matter the political persuasivity, doesn't mean that we just let the sin keep going. And it doesn't mean we don't speak God's truth. But it means we love people enough to talk to them about Jesus. We take them as they come and we love on them and we witness them in truth and in love, friends. If we want unity in this world, which is so desperately needed, it is not going to come through presidents and politicians. It will come through the kingdom of God. It will come through the gospel. It will come through Jesus Christ alone. That's multiplication right there, friends. How many people have you walked past and said, oh, they're hopeless? Man, we were all hopeless. We walk in this door every Sunday morning, and you know what we carry on our back? We carry sin. Find me one person in this room that is sinless. But yet when we see people that are different to us or caught up in horrendous sins, we think, oh no, we can't do anything with them. Friends, I want to see people come through these doors that look like whatever they look like. And I want to preach the gospel. We should all be willing to do that. And when we do that, we find joy. The joy that this text says comes from a harvest. Christians think that the reality of who we are or how worthy we are to God is how many people we lead to the Lord. Sometimes I think we have this picture in our minds that there's a massive scoreboard in heaven. And on there is Sam's self. 25,000 people saved in the last minute. And uh, believe me, I think Sam could do that. And then there's Mark, 15 million people. Benny Hinn, whatever. I don't know who these people are, but anyone else. There's a scoreboard that just talks about all of their people's glory. I'm telling you now, that doesn't exist. Do you want to know what exists in the kingdom of heaven? Our faithfulness is not measured by how many people we save, because guess what? You don't save anyone. Jesus does the saving. We sow the seed, he grows the seed. Our faithfulness is what God measures. Our ability to pick up our cross daily, to suffer for the sake of Christ, to say, Lord, not, your, not my will, but your will be done in my life. That's what the scoreboard of heaven shows. Who did that? Who died? Who laid their lives down? Who went to the least, the lonely and the most despised? That's what counts. Don't worry about who gets saved or how many people get saved. You've got to sow the seed of Jesus. Sow the seed of Jesus. Sow the seed of Jesus. And then he grows them. In fact, most of the people that you have an effect of bringing to the kingdom will never, ever happen in your presence. They'll happen outside of your presence. But when they look back on their lives, one day they'll say, man, remember that guy? He drove me nuts. He was South African. I didn't understand what he was saying. But he said, Jesus. That's all I remember. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Friends, when we live, when Jesus is real to us and we live like he's real to us, friends, we find our courage in him. All of us have come out of a horribly dark season in this world. All of us have been plagued by fear and insecurity. Every single one of us, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the outcome of the elections, whether it's inflation, whether it's how fearful we are of the outcomes. I've heard people say to me, you know, I have it on my heart to go here and preach the gospel, but I'm not gonna do it because I'm not sure what's gonna happen. I'm like, well, who cares what's gonna happen? If God's told you, just go. Just go to the nations. Go wherever God told you to go. Don't wait for things to get better. We are not a people governed by fear. We're a people governed by faith. You know, the illustration that's used here in this text is the illustration of the battle against the Midianites, which was basically won by one man. His name was Gideon. And you're probably saying to yourself, but I'm not a Gideon, Michael. Let me tell you about Gideon. He was fearful. He was hiding in a winepress, sitting down in fear, threshing his wheat so nobody could see him until the angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel, Jesus himself shows up to Gideon and says, wake up, you oh mighty man of valor. You are more courageous than you think, friends, when Christ in you is the hope of glory. But that's what it means to live a life where Jesus is real. There is nothing on this earth that can put fear into us because the God in me is greater than the God in this. World. I think we need to stand in the mirror and we need to say exactly what Jesus said to Gideon. We need to say, "O mighty man of valor or o woman of valor, you are courageous in the King. For to us, a child is born. To us the son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's four names attributed to Jesus here and four facts. When Jesus is real to us, he becomes our counselor. Maybe you're in need of a counselor today. Maybe you've come in and you're carrying a whole lot of stuff in you. Maybe there's a lot of hurts and pains and stuff that you're dealing with, stuff that you've never told to anyone. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no place for professional counselors in this world, but when Jesus is real to you, you take those things to him. You say, Lord, help me with all of this anger that I'm dealing with, all of this hatred, all of this bitterness, all of this stuff that I'm carrying from my past. Help me to work through it. that our go-to solution. We go to friends or people we don't know and we talk to them about stuff. And again, I'm not knocking that profession. I'm just saying that we have a counselor waiting. Maybe he should become the first person we go to. When Jesus is real to us, he becomes our mighty God. Mighty God in this verse or this passage is better translated as divine warrior or warrior king this is not about us you know being courageous this is about God doing what he said he would do our king is on a crusade friends, and he's bringing this entire world and he will bring it into submission to him and so what we need to take to heart every moment of every day is that what Jesus has said would happen will happen Our security is not in the circumstances of this world. It's not in the situations we find ourselves in. Our security is in our divine warrior who will finish what he started. When Jesus is real to us, we start to understand what it means to have an everlasting father. And so it's hard to connect to God, the father, with that understanding of what fathers are truly like. We struggle to understand God as a father. But Jesus, when he's real to us, connects us to the father. He helps us understand that he's the kind of father that will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abuse you. And he certainly will never abandon you, friends. When Jesus is real to us, he becomes our prince of peace. And that word peace there is not just feeling peaceful. Like we're in a meadow with a little river bubbling and it's all amazing. That word peace there and that term peaceful speaks of, speaks of the kingship of Christ. It speaks of what Jesus ratified 2,000 years ago when he was on that cross and he cried out these words, it is finished. Our peace is never going to be found on this earth. Just know that. Our peace is in eternity. What that tells us, friends, is we are a people who live with eternity in view. Because this world, friends, is as close to hell as we'll ever get. From this point onwards, we have glory in Christ. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, we who live this, in this nervous age, and we live in a nervous age, friends, would be wise to meditate on our, on our lives and our days long after, before the face of God and on the edge of eternity, for we are made for eternity as certain as we were made for time. And as responsible moral beings, we must deal with both. We're so caught up in what happens this side of eternity, friends, that we've forgotten that the rest of eternity is a really long time. When we live for eternity, everything changes. All of our perspectives change. What's important today becomes less important because we think of them. And that's where I want to be when it's time. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. I'm going to close another band can come up. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish. We remember that he's in charge and we're not. Isaiah uses the word government twice in this passage of Scripture. And while government certainly means that God is in control of everything, He is God, He has dominion over every single thing. The government that Isaiah is referencing here is actually the church. He's speaking about this body of believers across the globe, men and women of God serving Him faithfully. He is the head of the church. That's what Isaiah is saying. And I want to tell you this morning that that's something really important that you might may think, well, that's obvious but it's something important that we need to remember every moment of every day of our lives. I say that because so often, Jesus is not the head of His church. The church does that every time it puts its own comfort before His call. The church does that every time we put our will before His will. The church does that every time we put our own happiness. It's not an explosion of numbers, friends. It's not just about more people it speaks to a church that's filled with hope and not hopelessness. It's a church that's filled with destiny and not desperation. It's a picture of a church that's ready, that loves unconditionally. A church that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand. That's the kind of church I wanna be in. That's the kind of church that I pray every day for my life that this church would be. we would be a church that remembers that he's in charge and we're not that makes everything we do about Jesus. We live our lives subject to the King who's alive in us. we no fear, no fortune, no difficulties, no circumstances, no comforts will ever distract us. All we have in our mind is our King. We see Him daily, glorious, because He's alive. He's not dead. And yes, we're gonna celebrate His birth this Christmas. He'll make the main one, the main thing this Christmas. Let's make everything we do over the next six weeks of our lives or five weeks about Jesus. Let's make every conversation we have with the people out there about Jesus. And if you're here today and you feel ashamed of where you're at or you've done stuff that you say, Mark, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I did this week. I don't care what you did this week because welcome to the club, we're all sinners. Just repent before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me, change my heart, renew in me a clean heart and pure hands again, like David said. Give us a greater revelation of who you are, Jesus, this Christmas service season. Why? Because that's what to know Christ means. It means we know who He is. We know He's alive. We know He's with us. And then when we get that right and we see Jesus, then we do the rest of it for the rest of this Christmas season and beyond. And we make Him known to everyone, everywhere. This season is not about presents. It's not just about beautiful trees. It is about somebody who died for you, who is alive and can live inside you that can change your life. I know that there's a lot of people in this room who struggle with shame, who struggle with guilt, who struggle with condemnation because the enemy's heaped it upon you and you've made yourself believe that you're not worthy of God's calling. You're not worthy to, you know, fulfill it and whatever it is, it doesn't have to necessarily be dramatic stuff. It's just this lie that the enemy tells us, you don't know enough, you haven't been in church long enough, you can't do this because you can't speak, you can't do this because of that, whatever it is. I feel like God wants to break some chains today so that we can be free to do what God calls us to do. So if you need a revelation, if you say, Lord, I need to know you more, I need you to be alive in me more than ever before, then come up to the front. We wanna pray with you. And if you need to be broken free of any pain, any shame that you've been sort of carrying and being held back by, come up to the front. Please come up, friends. Prayer is never something that we should ever be embarrassed about asking for. I need prayer every day of my life. And so if that's you, we're going to sing Echo Holy a little bit. We're going to sing that chorus. But come up to the front. The elders are here. Prayer. Don't be scared. Don't look around you. Just come up to the front and say, here I am, Lord. Help me.